podcast land. Hello, tour guide, tell all fam. Uh, we are back. We are your friendly neighborhood uh, Washington, D.C. tour guides here with the scandalous and often hidden side of history, uh, U.S. history, Washington, D.C. history, uh, interesting and cool and exciting and scandalous history. Uh, and so we're back for uh, September, the second episode. Uh, as always, I am Rebecca. And I'm, I'm Rebecca. Oh. <laughs> we screwed that up. That's the first time I've ever done that. Oh, too stressful. <laughs> Let's try it again. Take two. Take two. As always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are... The Rebecca's. <laughs> okay, so we are back. It's September. It's a little cooler. Uh, we want to just mention before we dive into our topic that we are giving to- uh, tours. Fall time is the best time. Fall, winter, it's great DC, the payoff for living here in the summer is that we have a mild fall and winter and it's very lovely. And it's a great time to come and do outdoor tours with us. Uh, We would love to have you let us know. We're doing spooky tours in September and into October. Uh, So come on and join us if you're going to be in the DC area. Uh, And if you're not, that's great too. We thank you very much for being a part of our podcast family. Uh, And thank you especially much to our patrons. Uh, We love our patrons very, very much. They are the wind beneath our wings always. And if you are a patron, make sure you get your getting your patron back up. Bonuses. This September bonus is going to be about Governor Morris, who is, spoiler alert, fantastic. Uh, and so you want to get in on the ground floor on that one. Uh, if you're not a patron, you should become one because we are fun and it's good times. Uh, but that is the intro and we are going to talk about something very exciting and very DC based. It has a good DC connection because it actually happened in DC. Uh, and it is a very exciting thing. I'm honestly kind of surprised We've gone this long and have not talked about this yet in detail. I think it's one of those things where it's come up in previous episodes. And in fact, um, if you're listening to this, I would highly recommend one particular episode that you stop and listen to if you haven't yet. But this is overlap with so many things. And I think um, it's just been overdue for us to dig into it in and of itself. And I love that it's not something that on its surface feels like a labor story, but very, very much is. Very much is. So September is Labor Month at Tour Guide Tell All. So this has a very strong labor connection. And the episode that you should dig into that's sort of a companion to this we did in February uh, is about Bayard Rustin, uh, which was a really great and very interesting episode and uh, it sort of ties in very well with this. So go listen to that first. We'll wait. It's great. Yeah. Um, Trust me, um, you're going to want to do that because we cover uh, some, I think, key elements that we'll touch on here, but we go in depth a little bit more with Rustin. And um, you probably recognize some of the other names that are going to come up in today's episode. But if you don't recognize Rustin's, go listen because it's going to help paint the context. And if you are a DC local, you have maybe seen the Rustin film that we referenced in that episode filming. They were at the Lincoln Memorial basically recreating the March yes. on Washington. They've been up in Eastern Market. Lots of cool vintage cars. They actually just recreated Ruby Bridges, like first day at school mm-hmm. up on Eastern Market. So there's some really, really cool filming happening. A lot of DC locals are extras, which is really cool to see. So um, that's going to be really exciting. So Netflix next year, February 2023 is what we're hearing. I'm really excited about this. It's going to be really amazing. So I'm ready. But we're going to talk about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. If you've heard of the March on Washington, and you probably have, uh, you have heard of the I Have a Dream speech 
Dr. Martin Luther King's big moment on the Lincoln Memorial. That is part of this, and we're going to get to that, but there is a lot more to cover. And I would like to just start out and mention that very deliberately, this is called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Because the, the organizers knew that freedom has an economic component to it. That you cannot truly be free unless you can afford to be free. Unless you have a job, unless your labor is valued. And so that is a very key component and the, the march was very deliberately named. And we'll get into more of that in a bit. But I mention that every time I mention this, which is every single national tour, I do. Well, and I think that a lot of us, we learned about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. We learned about King's speech. We learned about it as this key moment in the civil rights movement, which it certainly is. But we tend not to see it or learn about it as students through the like lens of labor history. So this is a bit of a corrective. But I think one of the important things to note about the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and more broadly, to really kind of know about the civil rights movement of the 1960s, is it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's this sense when we talk about these movements that they pop up in little five or 10 year increments, and that's the movement, and then nothing happens, and then another movement comes along. And what we call civil rights is the work of generations and generations and generations working and protesting and organizing and agitating. And so what happens on August 28, 1963, is the result of the work of 60 to 80 years, really, of organizing, but even more specifically, about 20 years of direct work by a man named A. Philip Randolph. Yes. A. Philip Randolph is fascinating. We've mentioned him. We mentioned him specifically in the episode of A Bayard Rustin. Um, A. Philip Randolph at this point is like the sort of old man of the civil rights um, movement. He is, uh, by this time, he's safely in his 70s. So he is not a young man. He is absolutely fascinating. And um, he is like the leader. Uh, and so he and Bayard Rustin are going to organize this actually in the 40s at first. So the They're first going to attempt to organize attempt. it, we should say. Yes. They are very keen to have a large-scale march. And they want to do it during World War II, which if you think about it, when we enter the Second World War, it's an all-in effort. We've got, you know, 16 million men serving in uniform. The entire country's it. And these two leaders, Rustin and Randolph, want to march against the government, which is a pretty radical thing to do when you're at war and everybody's supposed to be all in it together. Yes. But they have some legitimate complaints. They do, and particularly, like, it's a particularly radical act considering that, first of all, as we talked about in the Rustin episode, he's got some personal issues. He's not an a old man at that time. Rustin's about 30 in the uh, in 1941. So he's not, like, an old person yet. He's a draft dodger. It's a big deal. There's also, like, there's so much backlash to labor leaders that a white labor leader was burned in effigy uh, in, the, in 1941. John L. Lewis, who's different than the John R. Lewis we're going to talk about, um, he was burned in effigy for saying that, like, for uh, organizing union strikes and things in the midst of the war effort. So this is, like, the idea that they have is very radical. Um, they are want to design to uh, the this action. They think talk about this and think about it at various points during the war years, uh, but it's designed to pressure the government into providing fair working opportunities for black Americans, as well as desegregating the armed forces and the war effort, because it's segregated at this time. There's always a threat to march, but the march never happens. And what ends up really happening is that in 1941, Franklin Roosevelt signs Executive Order 8802, prohibiting discrimination in the defense industry for those under contract to federal agencies, and movement leaders are really pressured to back off. 
And so FDR is going to prohibit if you basically, if you ever are under federal contract, you can't uh, discriminate in your employment practices. And this is going to be seen as enough to force Randolph and Rustin to sort of back off. And this is a good executive order that FDR signed, mm -hmm. but the teeth is really in the enforcement, which is lackadaisical at best. And while there will be Senate oversight into federal contracts, there's a lot more concern about waste, safety, material, than there is about equal hiring practice, equal pay, and discriminatory practices. So even though he signs this EO pretty early into the American war effort, we still very much have a segregated armed forces, which we talk about in other episodes. Um, and a lot is being asked of black Americans during this war. And yet the sort of idea that they're supposed to expect equal pay, equal opportunity, it's sort of like, oh, this is not the time. So you can imagine these guys, um, had this idea in the 1940s and they don't back away from it simply because mm -hmm. the war ends um, and a lot of their pressure helps lead to things like the desegregation of the armed forces and Truman following FDR sort of signing a number of bills to help sort of reduce discriminatory action in federal contracts. But I think we should kind of circle a little bit to A. Philip Randolph uh, and sort of his labor background. A. Philip Randolph is deeply fascinating to me. He's someone that unfortunately because he like is by the time the movement is really kind of taking off, he's the father of this movement, but he's also, when this march happens, he's in his 70s. So he's kind of past his prime, whereas we'll talk about, like, a lot of these guys are really young, specifically Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and John Lewis. Um, but he leads the first black-led labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And so he's at the intersection of a lot of labor activism and a lot of and civil rights. And this is going to put him uh, in touch with the socialism, the movement of socialists, He's going to frequently be involved in that. It's also going to put him in the crosshairs of a lot of people. Like, there's a lot of intersection between civil rights and labor that are going to make him a lot of people that don't like him particularly. So he's a big deal. He's originally from Florida. He heads to New York to escape the Jim Crow South and find better opportunities. He's going to marry a wealthy widow, actually a Howard University alum, so that's a little D.C. connection, um, who supports them both. And so he, like... Having a wealthy spouse is useful if you want to dedicate your life to really anything, but specifically like agitation and um, you need to have a job to fund things. And she has enough money that he doesn't really, that's not as important to him. The two of them also end up having no children, which I think also is important to note in that he has the freedom and flexibility to give 110% to labor, to civil rights, to these movements, because A, he is financially stable, mm -hmm. and B, he and his wife are not raising children. And so it does freeze him, free him up in such a way that occasionally he is frustrated by others who are not able to dedicate as much time and energy. And yeah. it's mindful, I think it's good to be mindful that he has a unique position in that he is not having to worry to struggle day to day with things like paying the bills. Right, right. It's good work if you can get it. <laughs> and his organizing activity from a labor perspective involves a number of different industries and groups. He's going to try to organize uh, elevator operators in New York City. He's going to work with shipyard and dock workers in Virginia. But it really is the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is going to be his most successful endeavor because it's the first Black-led labor union to sustain long-term. And this is really significant, especially at a time where there are very few protections within our legal system for black workers. Right. 
And particularly at a time when that's how people traveled was by train. So sleeping car porters basically on an overnight train, they're the people who do all of the things for you. And so they're mostly African-American, they're mostly men, and they're treated very badly because of this. And so he's going to organize this union and he wins them, um, negotiates with the Pullman Company, uh, and the porters win a two, two, won $2 million of pay, crease, uh, pay increases, uh, better working conditions, shorter work week, and overtime pay. So they're getting overtime. They're having to work all these hours and not getting like anything beyond 40 hours like we would today. They're getting just their regular pay for no, no matter how many hours they work. So it's really kind of, um, it's amazing. He's actually a really interesting guy. He becomes influenced by the, direct, the peaceful action of people like Gandhi. Uh, and so is going to advocate for those methods in the United States. And so he's going to influence Martin Luther King Jr. in that way. Yeah, he's going to be one of the earliest proponents of sort of taking the nonviolent but direct action approach that Gandhi sort of advocates for and really saying this will work in the U.S. Mm -hmm. If we do it and commit to it, it can work. And so um, he is really a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. They connect most meaningfully beginning in 1957 when um, Philip Randolph, a Philip Randolph assists in organizing the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom, which is in May of 57 in DC. This is basically a kind of test run for a larger scale march on Washington. It was organized in, uh, specifically to acknowledge the third anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, which a little note, Brown versus Board of Education is going to be a very influential Supreme Court ruling in that it will say you cannot, right? Cannot separate. But um, like anything, it's all about enforcement. And so even though this decision comes down, what is playing out on a state level is absolutely in violation of this. And so part of this prayer pilgrimage, which is such lovely wording, because it's not a march, it's not scary, it's a prayer pilgrimage, is to raise awareness of the fact that there is no real enforcement. This is a three-hour demonstration at the Lincoln Memorial. 25,000 people attend, so it's a good number. Some of the um, people brought in to perform, Mahalia Jackson, Harry Belafonte, these are people that will be at the March on Washington in 1963, and then MLK, is the last speaker. He's the big finish to this prayer pilgrimage. And this is his first major national address. This is basically all a test run for what is going to happen six years later. Yes. And he has a great speech there called the Give Us the Ballot speech, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But if you listen to that and then listen to I Have a Dream, very similar rhetorical device, mm -hmm. except instead of repeating I Have a Dream, it is Give Us the Ballot. Yes. And it's give us the ballot to help us accomplish this. Give us the ballot so we can do this. It's a really um, very, very strong King speech. That guy was a good a good writer and a good speaker. I don't know King if you guys King was a great that. speaker. He really, really was an out, a commanding speaker. And also in 1957, when they have this prayer um, uh, gathering at the Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. is like 28 years old. Like, he's young. We all think of him being older, and I don't know why, but like he only was 39 years old when he died. So, like, he's very, he's exceptionally young. Um, so the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, 1961 is when they start thinking about this. So almost two full years in the planning. This starts in the late fall of uh, 1961. A. Philip Randolph plans a march for 1963 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And Bayard Rustin is 
kind of his dude. Like, Bayard Rustin's the guy that he is going to want to help him organize. Given that Bayard Rustin has a network, he's got extensive experience in organizing, um, that's who he wants to sort of help him with this. Uh, Randolph is going to initially envision two days of protest, like a two-day event, including sit-ins and lobbying, uh, focusing on joblessness and a call for public works programs to employ black Americans. So public works programs, very similar to what FDR is going to do during the New Deal. You know, all sorts of different things, giving people jobs, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Worst Progress Administration, that sort of dynamic, large-scale, full-on government investment in Af an African-American workforce. So that's what he is hoping for. That's what he wants. Um, Rustin and Randolph want to focus on economic equality as well as segregation and discrimination uh, but in work, but choose the broader focus of jobs and freedom to align with the agenda of the civil rights groups that are kind of agitating at this time. And so at its heart, this is a march about, it's a labor demonstration. They are, it's primarily organized by labor activists. So they are marching for freedom, they are marching for desegregation, but again, they understand innately that you cannot have freedom if you are not treated equally at your job. That labor is a huge part of how you get to freedom. If you can't get the same jobs as someone of who, a white person, you don't have freedom. So the ballot box doesn't matter as much. Yeah, there's matters, definitely, I think, an understanding, too, that at the end of the day, what really impacts a person's day-to-day -day quality of life is economic, right? Yes. Can you put food on the table? Can you keep a roof over your head? Do you have opportunities for that? And I think what often gets lost in the talk about this march is that for those two years, it is primarily labor unions that are fundraising, organizing, implementing, mm -hmm. and the civil rights groups are brought in over the course of the process later, and the scope mm -hmm. expands uh, to tap into this present moment but that this is very much envisioned to be labor first and labor focused. Right. And as they expand, uh, they're going to come up with the big six, which are the sort of big six organizers. The leaders of several different organizations meet in June of 1963 to coordinate their funds and their message. So just for now, a timeline perspective, two years of kind of work primarily being done by Randolph and Rustin, but now this is June, this March is going to be in August, and we're mm -hmm. just now sort of bringing in the civil rights teams to kind of come on board. Right. And I also, when we list off these names, I want to note, I want to note who is missing from this in two very important categories. Number one, there's Randolph. He's one of the big six. James Farmer, who's the Congress of Racial Equality. John Lewis, who's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Martin Luther King Jr., Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Ray Wilkins, who's the uh, NAACP. Uh, and Whitney Young, the National Urban League. Now, who's missing? First of all, Rustin. Bayard Rustin's not on that list. <laughs> also, all of those are dudes. They are all men. Um, there's a couple things to know here. Um, there are two very key women. One is Dorothy Height, who we have mentioned previously. Um, Height um, would be at this time uh, head of the National Council for Negro Women, uh, which was founded by Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, the other sort of key woman is Anna Arnold Hedgeman. These are sort of the two women that are very much engaged, but they are not technically part of the big six or what a later gets expanded to be called the Big Ten. They are organizers, as it were, but they get very little acknowledgement, press. They're often left out of meetings, and uh, 
that is going to play out and how this march ultimately is carried out. Uh, the lack of representation for women really in a public way of who's in charge is going to impact who's going to publicly be a part of this event on August 28th. So right around this time, they're also going to broaden their organizing coalition by bringing in four white men who support their efforts. These are going to be uh, Walter Reuter, the president of the United Automobile Workers, Eugene Carson Blake, the former president of the National Council of Churches, Matthew Amon, the executive director of the National Catholic Conference for Interracial Justice, and Joachim Prince, the president of the American Jewish Congress. So they become now known as the Big Ten. Not and, and you might note, right, we get a little you, a little labor union in there. The UAW, I don't think gets enough credit for how much support they put into this march, particularly financial and logistically. The UAW produces almost all the signs. And like when you see pictures and people are holding these signs and posters, these were produced and manufactured by the UAW almost exclusively. So um, they, they really play a very big part in making this actually happen. And then they bring in a number of religious organizations organizations. And one interesting thing about Anna Arnold Hedgeman is she actually on her own, uh, because she's not really having a seat at this table, is going to organize 40,000 white Protestants to come and march and be a part of the March on Washington, because she understands that a huge a huge entry into middle-class white society in this era is to go through religious organizations. So by having the support of these religious groups and getting religious Americans who see themselves as moral and just to come to this march is a way to get them invested in this movement, um, which yes. is very savvy of her. Very savvy. Rustin, Bayard Rustin, as we talked about in the episode about him, he is going to be really left out uh, of this. Uh, for his personal and political controversies, he's a draft dodger. He's also a homosexual. Uh, and so the big the big six are going to object to him being sort of named director. And so Randolph kind of is the march's director. Rustin is technically his deputy, uh, but Rustin does a lot of the work. He does a lot of the really important behind the scenes work. And the reason for this is they know that if Rustin is the face of this, he will be literally the face of this and it'll be about him. And in fact, Senator Strom Thurmond is going to publicly attack Rustin on the floor of the Senate before all of this, hoping to discredit what's happening. Uh, they're going to, he's going to call him a sex pervert and a draft dodger. And so it, it is savvy, but extremely unfortunate that they felt the need to sideline Rustin uh, for this. And Rustin knows what's going on and seems to be okay with it, but still it's not really great uh, that they could not put him in a more prominent position for this, it's considering how much work it's he does. It's a testament, I think, to Rustin, too, as an individual and person, that he still does really a bulk of this labor, does a ton of this work. He makes this yes. march happen, despite yep. how he's being treated by his peers and his colleagues. And it really is an example of, I think, putting the movement and the cause before one one's own self and ego mm -hmm. and uh it's really a remarkable thing because he does all of the real work that does. this is this is these marches don't just happen not successfully if you have a successful march it is always the work of people in advance making it happen and rustin does like 90 percent of that yeah, Rustin does a lot. Of, like, we'll get into a little more of the behind-the-scenes work that he does in a minute, but he does a lot of this sort of the unheralded, unappreciated background 
like slog basically to make sure that this happens. Um, the organizers, not including Rustin, are going to meet with President Kennedy in June to smooth things over with the federal government. And JFK warns against an atmosphere of intimidation, but does give a press conference in support of the movement and says that organizers have worked with local police. So he says that they have the backing of the federal government. This is done with their sort of buy-in. He knows what's going on. There's a very famous picture of them all with Kennedy at the White House. Um, and so this is going to be part of um, their sort of very savvy strategy to make this legitimate. However, I think it's worth noting, you know, JFK and his administration is concerned about what this is going to look like. Mm -hmm. They are worried about the potential for violence. They are worried about everyday, you know, white Americans mm -hmm. and white Americans in D.C. feeling threatened and concerned. So there's a lot of admonishing that goes on. There's a lot of dictates that are handed down. And the initial plan for this march, which we touched on in the Rustin episode, was to march on the Capitol because... Mm -hmm. That's where decisions are made. Legislation mm -hmm. happens in Congress. They don't want to have it at the Lincoln Memorial. They want to have it at the Capitol. But the compromise that is encouraged, particularly from the older organizers in the big 610 and from the federal government, is it will all play better and look nicer if it's at Lincoln. And if it's about the Emancipation Proclamation, then it should be at Lincoln. The younger members, particularly John Lewis, are not happy about this. They see this march as something that's supposed to be a lobbying effort. And by mm -hmm. taking it away from the Capitol, you're taking some of the teeth out of it. So I want to mention that because that's going to come up a little bit too later when we talk about sort of the reactions to the march. I also think it like it would be a completely different event in American history if they'd had this on the steps of the Capitol. I think this would have gotten been a very more political, very much more political. Yes, imminently um, so. I think it would have been be less sort of cozy and sort of easy to square in our national memory. Um, and you don't get like the, the visual of King with, you know, the Lincoln Memorial in back of him and calling out about the, the Emancipation Proclamation is so powerful. And so moving, it turns out to be the right choice, but I can so also see what they wanted to do. And that's not at the Lincoln Memorial. That's at the Capitol. They want to spur Congress. And we'll talk about the, the goals and the ass of this March in a little bit, but they have an agenda. There is yeah. real legislative change they want out of this. And you don't get that just from having a nice, pretty symbolic demonstration. And so it, this is an example of those little compromises that they make for fear of upsetting the apple cart too much, right? And upsetting, yes. they're trying to stay just on the right side of Kennedy's admin. Yes, um, exactly. And I will say too, Randolph and Rustin wanted this to be black demonstrators only. They wanted it to be their people, their communities marching, and it will become, again, at the urging of sort of the broader uh, organizers to make this all races, all backgrounds, this powerful visual of all Americans coming together. And again, I think it's ultimately the right choice, but if you think about what the intention is and how it plays out, there's clear that there's some, some compromising and some sanding of the edges that happens for this march. And not all the compromises are necessarily bad. Like, I feel like had this this march been only African-Americans, it would have been very easy for white America to just dismiss it, particularly given the, like, popular sentiment at the time. I feel like the idea that they open this up to not just white Americans, but Latinx and Native Americans, that's going to give this a flavor of, like, hey, we all want freedom and jobs. Yeah. So I feel like that's actually a really beneficial compromise for their 
uh, work. It's going to take a team of 200 activists working for weeks to bring this march to happen. Like this just doesn't happen. Uh, marches like this take a lot of planning, particularly back then when they didn't have like the internet and Twitter. Um, one of Rustin's chief aides is Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is still Washington DC's um, non-voting representative in the United States Congress. Uh, she is still kind of doing it. She's been uh, active in the civil rights scene since literally back in the day. Um, this is all done in about three months, which is really remarkable be considering, again, the scale of the event and the various factions working within it. So not only is this a massive event, not only are they doing this before the internet, before fax machines, before emails. They have telephones back then. And that, so they're doing this all like sort of pre-cell phone. And they're also, the various factions are, they all want something. Everyone wants something a little bit different. You've got labor organizers, you've got civil rights organizers, you've got um, women who want a piece of something, who want to be represented and have their issues spoken to. You have all different kinds of things coming together. And the idea that Rust Rustin is able to make this happen along with the logistics of it. So Rustin's going to have to train off-duty police officers as marshals because thousands of people descending on a place you need to have some kind of security presence and rustin knows as everyone does is if this turns into if there's any violence this that's what the focus will be it will not be on the message it It'll will be on legitimize it and they don't have a lot of faith and trust in the law enforcement being provided by the city which True. is understandable yep Yep, they don't. They're, and they're also, you have, you need people to direct traffic. So one of the things about this march that really moves seamlessly is moving this many people in and out of a place is difficult. You need people to direct traffic and figure out where you can park and literally like point people the way. We don't have Metro yet. So they've got to figure out how they're getting out of the city or wherever they're going to be staying that night. You have to have people to help do that, literally directing traffic. You're also on the National Mall where there's like, a lot of people generally, and so you need some way to like negotiate all of these people. You also have um, make sure that it remains peaceful and to minimize the amount of trash. They're expecting hundreds of thousands of people. People come with trash. Like that's just, you know, stuff happens. And so how do we get, again, how do we clean all of this up in the aftermath? So there's a lot of organizing and I feel like like over 4,000 volunteers are recruited to help keep this safe and nonviolent, to help direct traffic and to help people figure out where they're going and literally to clean up after them. Like this is all, Rustin writes a manual for this. Like this is crazy town. He does so much really unheralded work to make sure that this all goes smoothly. It's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, they were expecting probably about 100,000 people at most. They end up getting almost triple that. So yeah. that's kind of a remarkable thing, too, that the fact is they're planning for a large number of people, yet he builds a system that still holds up even mm -hmm. with a much bigger attendance than I expected. He's very um, purposeful in putting things out like talking points and understanding the purpose of the march, making sure all the groups get on the same page. We mentioned this in the Rustin episode, but their sound system was sabotaged the mm -hmm. night before and Rustin makes it work. He goes and kind of gets um, 
the Kennedy administration to help them get the um, sabotage or get the sabotage system back up and running. Because without a sound system, how do you keep order? What is the point? Nobody can hear what anyone's saying. It's an essential piece of this. Right, and it's the sound system's really interesting because the they had someone had sabotaged the sound system, and like this is 1963. There's not like they don't have cell phones and stuff like that. So the sound system is like several trucks and all figuring all this out, and it gets sabotaged. They have to send out an armed guard to sort of po- protect what's left, and then Rustin basically calls the Kennedy administration and is like, "Look, it, we need to fix this because we have hundreds of thousands of people coming, and if they can't hear what's going on, it's going to turn nasty really fast." And so actually the government gets involved at the direction of the Kennedy administration to help sort of fix this and the sound system is up and running because Rustin like basically says look at you this is gonna end badly and you <laughs> we need help here um, the scale of this entire march is astonishing to me they expect a hundred thousand people and reports very much differ on how many they actually got about 250 to 280,000 seems to be about the right amount which is an enormous number of people. Like, that's insane, particularly for, like, one part of the National Mall. Um, there are 2,000 chartered buses, 21 chartered trains, 10 chartered flights all coming to D.C., and that's in addition to, like, regular air traffic and bus traffic is all packed full of people who are coming to this. And the, all the people who just drive in vehicles. Yes, and just show up. Um, the initial plans have been to fill all of the streets of D.C., but ultimately the march goes from Mar- the Washington Monument to the Lincoln Memorial, which is just shy of a mile, um, right down. And the, I actually didn't know this until I did the research for this. They wanted the men to march down Constitution Avenue and the women to march down Independence Avenue, which sucks. And I don't like that at all. That's not how it worked out. They Everybody kind of just went down Constitution Avenue. Um, security is big. Like, there's a lot of security. 5,900 officers on duty. 2,000 National Guard with an extra 3,000 flown in from various, like, military installations and places around. 19,000 troops in the suburbs in case there's violence and it spreads and people are nervous. Which I feel like is such a... That's such a tell. 19,000 people in the suburbs. I'm just going to say that. Uh, Liquor sales are banned in Washington, D.C. for the event. This is the first time liquor sales had been banned since Prohibition. So over 30 years. Like, they had liquor sales are banned. Hospitals are going to cancel any elective surgeries and stockpile blood because they anticipate, obviously, there's going to be some violence. Um, The... um, Baseball, Major League Baseball cancels. D.C. had the Senators baseball team then, and they were in town. They were at the bottom of the American League, so they stunk anyway. Uh, But um, they canceled two games. History repeating itself. I know. (laughs) Sorry. There you go. Um, the UAW produces most of the signs that you see for the march. So they are going to do a lot of that work. Yeah. And I find it fascinating. You mentioned trash, but one of the big sort of things that Rustin dictates is they tell people not to make their own banners, not to make their own signs. Some people do. It's inevitable with 250,000 people. People are going to do their own thing. But it was really important that the messaging be specific. If you look at the signs that are produced and the slogans, it's very labor and job focused. Mm -hmm. That is that is the point of this. And they wanted to make sure that, like, if they were distributing materials, they knew what it said. They didn't want people out there with 
pamphlets espousing things that weren't part of the march's goals. So Rustin really does sort of lay it down a dictate. And by having UAW provide most of those materials, they could control the messaging, which I think is very savvy and something organizers could be more, I think, mindful of today, right? Um, thinking about that. There are very specific goals for this march. When they say jobs and freedom, that's not just like, oh, we just want more jobs and we want freedom for everybody. These are the stated goals of the march. Yes. Meaningful civil rights legislation, immediate elimination of school segregation, enforcement of that, but immediately eliminated. And we think of like, just to jump in on that one, we think of Brown v. Board, which was decided by the Supreme Court in 1954 as being ultimately, boom, they snap their fingers and everything is better. No, like there is an enforcement mechanism that is not actually enforced as well. So there's a lot of history with Brown and we should do a whole pot about Brown and his actor fest at some point, but they want to like basically enforce this. Exactly. So they're looking at not just, okay, well, you passed a law or you made a ruling. We want to actually see this carried out. They want a public works program for the unemployed, um, which is something that Rustin and Randolph have been advocating for for decades. A federal law prohibiting discrimination in public and private employment hiring. Mm -hmm. There are already at this point some laws in regards to public jobs, federal jobs, government jobs, but they want to see this playing out in the private sector. A $2 an hour minimum wage, friends, today that would be about an $18 an hour minimum wage. We, you can't with, see our faces, but we without are getting out. on a soapbox about the minimum wage. <laughs> um, Sorry, that's what they were fighting for. That was what was considered livable. Um, mm -hmm. So I find that really fascinating. Um, withholding federal funds from programs allowing discrimination. Mm -hmm. So very important. This would have included federal contracts, housing, places that got federal funding for housing, um, but really looking at withholding funds if you discriminated, particularly in the South. Basically, enforcement of the 14th Amendment. That's a stated goal, but that is really what so much of this covers. Yep. Uh, and this is the connection to Lincoln, right? If you're at the Lincoln Memorial, you're tying back to that history. You're talking about the 14th Amendment. A Fair Labor Standards Act broadened to include other employment areas that were excluded at the time. Today, if you look at the Fair Labor Standards Act, it is more broad than it was in 63, and then essentially more power in the hand of the attorney general to bring suits when any of these things are violated. Yeah. And that's really the biggest thing is it's not just, yeah, we want you to pass a law or we want to stop this practice. It's we want the government to work for us because it mm -hmm. hasn't been. And we the unspoken thing here is we have politicians paying us lip service and we want action. Yes. We want meaningful action. And I really love that these goals are so specific, but also really adamant. Um, there's a clarity here about where the U.S. government is failing a large portion of its population. Um, and it's, it's crystal clear here, and I, I really appreciate that. And then they sort of orchestrate this event. And so much of the march is so focused on King and his speech, but this is really choreographed down mm -hmm. to the moment. And this is meant to really embody so much history, decades of history, but also all these different groups and all of the things they want. So I love the way that this is sort of put together. 
it's really, there's a lot of speakers, and we all think of the only speech we think of is the last one, which is King's speech. Uh, but there were, he's like number 17 on the program list. He's the 10th major speaker. So they had a lot of, Marian Anderson, who's a famous, beautiful opera singer, African-American opera singer. She was supposed to sing the national anthem, a tribute to her own concert there, her own Lincoln Memorial moment in 1939. But she doesn't arrive in time. Which actually, Which this not- is a theme for several people who were supposed <laughs> to be involved. Because transportation in 63 was tricky. Sure. Yep, definitely. Um, there is um, Camilla Williams sing in, uh, sings instead. She had sung the Star Spangled Banner outside the White House before. Uh, the first black opera singer to get, um, to the first black opera singer to get a major, a regular contract with a major American opera. Um, Anderson does arrive, though, later. later, and sings a different song. So she's there. Um, there is a pre-show and then the speakers and the list of celebrities in attendance. Like I was gobsmacked when I looked through this, the like Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, they all perform. Uh, Josephine Baker does their, um, uh, speech sort of to open up the march. Um, but you have in attendance, Hilary Belafani, Sidney Poitier, James Baldwin, Jackie Robinson, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Eartha Kitt, Ozzie Davis, Diane Carroll, Lena Horne. There's also a bunch of white, uh, supporters of this celebrities, Tony Curtis, James Garner, Charlton Heston. Yeah. Which if you're married to a Heston fanatic, like I am Heston's appearance at the March is uh, something that comes up a lot. I bet it does. Yeah. Uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, Marlon Brando, Rita Moreno, Burt Lancaster. Like there's a whole laundry list of like really famous names that show up for this. I'm glad you Um, mentioned Baldwin for just a moment because James Baldwin wants to speak and he mm-hmm. wants to be part of this and they will basically blackball him out of it. And the fact yeah. that he attends, he was discouraged not to come. And Baldwin would be quite critical of this, um, as will some others we'll talk about a little bit later. But he does come and make an appearance. But that shows you, too, how orchestrated this was. The organizers wanted to be sure that they knew exactly what everyone was going to say. All speeches, all remarks had to be approved and confirmed and reviewed. And so they, Baldwin was too much of a wild card for them to let him go out. Uh, and so he's there, but it is sort of interesting that uh, he's just there sort of as a celebrity attendee and as someone yeah. who garners some attention, but they're not about to let him in front of a microphone. No. Uh, A. Philip Randolph is the first speaker, the March director. Uh, His quote is, we shall return again and again to Washington in ever-growing numbers until total freedom is ours. Walter Reuter, on behalf of the United Auto Workers and the AFL-CIO, also is the second major speaker, Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP. And he is going to acknowledge W.E.B. Du Bois, who actually, as complete chance would have it passed away the night before while living in exile so they are going to have a moment of silence for this Uh, and again this might not have been something that everyone had known since it only happened the night before and they didn't have twitter so like this is this he could have been breaking this news for people i think it's also a maybe good moment to just acknowledge too generationally that mm-hmm. this is 1963 and when we think about web du bois where we tend to think about sort of the turn of the century mm-hmm. um this particular generation but that was a philip randolph's generation that uh-huh. was a generation of some of these other leaders and so there were individuals who had lived through the 1880s 1890s in america mm-hmm. and were here at this march and so 
um, we tend to think about all these things, and we, we hit on this on a lot of episodes, as so separate from each other, but they're so intertwined and so overlapping, uh, especially when we're coming to sort of this generational element. So the fact that sort of Du Bois dies right before this march and he gets acknowledged and there's this moment of silence, and this was someone who ultimately is exiled because mm-hmm. of, of his politics and his background, um, among other things, uh, it's sort of an interesting little wrinkle here um, because there are going to be people in this group who are going to find themselves ostracized and pushed out from these events. John Lewis, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, he is the youngest speaker at 23 and will become the last remaining speaker. So he outlives everyone else. Um, Lewis, John Lewis is so great. He had a young, radical John Lewis who had already had his head split open by by police. He wants to give a very critical speech about the Kennedy administration. He wants to personally call out Jack Kennedy as not doing enough. um, And he really just like literally point because they're standing at the Lincoln Memorial. You can point towards the White House and point the finger at Kennedy not doing enough. And... There's going to be a lot of pressure on him to walk some of this back. So when he submits his speech for, like, you know, the review, people are going to say, wait a minute, this is a little much. We don't want to actually antagonize the Kennedy administration. And so he's going to be forced to, like, he, John Lewis wants to threaten a march through the South like Sherman. (laughs) Like, that's literally what he wants to say. And the march organizers are like, whoa, let's not, like, needlessly piss people off. Uh, And so he's going to basically be forced to, like, amend the speech. They are literally working on his speech until... Uh, like that morning, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, they are working on sort of softening some of his really um, amazing language. And he, many people are angered that he gets censored. There's calls that they're censoring him, that his remarks are being sort of watered down. Um, so that's going to be part of this. Yeah, and you can imagine, I think, particularly for the student organizers, for the younger generation, there is a sense of frustration that they have to sort of play it so safe that mm-hmm. they have to really stick to such scripted, specific language. And it's smart from Rustin's perspective and Randolph's, I think, as organizers to control the narrative. But I can certainly see generationally how frustrating that must have been. And that will be one of the reasons that for some young organizers, their reaction to this march is not one of overwhelming like embrace because they mm-hmm. feel that their leaders have been censored, that they were sort of like shackled in what they could say, handcuffed um, and sort of stifled. And, uh, you know, Lewis throughout his life w- would speak to this and certainly ultimately come around to the significance of this march, but he doesn't shy away in his lifetime talking about the fact that he had written pretty much one speech and they forced him to write another Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there's a tribute to Negro women fighters for freedom. A tribute. You don't get to have an official speaker. We're not really going to talk about women's issues. Um, and they basically, this is what they say to Dorothy Height and Anna Arnold Hedgeman, is they basically say, well, how can one woman speak for all women? And women have a lot of issues, you know. And if we, we kind of raise one woman's issue, what about another? You know, the woman worker's issue is different from the woman homemaker. And so they basically decide 
And this is something Rustin does kind of push for. Um, so there's at least some representation, but it's so middling and so kind of sad. This little tribute. So the tribute's led by Rustin. Um, it was supposed to have a brief, like, three-minute remarks from the widow of Medgar Evers, Merrily Evers, and she misses her flight. So she also isn't going to arrive in time. And I would also like to just point out, Merrily Evers' husband was just killed two months prior. Like, Medgar Evers has not been dead for more than two and a half months at this point. So she's like a brand new widow. This is still very much in the nation's consciousness. There's still, this is still a very big sort of open question about what's going to happen there. So Merrily Evers sorely missed at this. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine how powerful that certainly would have been, yeah. the visual of this young widow, um, again, because they're also young when these things happen. Mm -hmm. um, instead, though, they invite up another young woman, Daisy Bates, who had been part of the Little Rock Nine. Um, she will speak for two and a half minutes. So this is, she's not given a chance to make real remarks. It's essentially, we're here to honor women. They have a group of several women on stage and are on the steps, including Rosa Parks, but that's sort of it. Um, there's no real acknowledgement beyond that. However, Daisy Bates is going to be getting a statue added to the statuary collection at the United States Capitol building. So that's still in the works. I don't think it's actually been completed yet, but I imagine probably by next year, hopefully, Daisy Bates is gonna be represented for her long career of activism in the movement. It just makes me very sad that there's no like significant women's participation, that they don't, that the March organizers don't see that as vital to the struggle for jobs and freedom, that this is not, they're not considered, that they're given very token roles and very backseat roles. That makes me, it's my one like overwhelmingly huge con uh, criticism of this March is that it is not, you know, women's labor is important and women's freedom is important and African-American women's freedom is particularly important and that's not addressed in any sort of real way is really just a, a I think a significant missed opportunity and that is all I will say agreed um, Dr. Eugene Carson Blake, United Presbyterian Church and National Council of Churches is their Protestant representation uh, Floyd McKissick Congress of Racial Equality um, James Farmer was supposed to speak, but he had been arrested. So that wasn't a thing that was going to happen. Uh, I should um, say arrested for protesting, for protesting. For protesting, action. correct. So yes, Farmer, yes. who at the time is one of the big six, he's the leader of CORE. He'd been very involved in this, but planning a march does not sort of uh, exempt you from your other actions and organizing. And that's how Farmer felt. Farmer felt that they still had these protests happening in Louisiana. He felt he had to be there. And then he ends up getting arrested and jailed and he can't travel to D.C. So McKissick will... Um, give farmers speech, but I, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that even in the midst of planning, this march that has, I think, in our memory, sort of this rosy, it's it's so wonderful we all came together sort of mentality, mm -hmm. that one of the core members who organized it was unable to attend because he's arrested for exercising his First Amendment rights. Right. Uh, Rabbi Joachim Prince, the American Jewish Congress, and Matthew Amin, the National uh, Catholic Conference. They represent the Jewish and the uh, Catholic side of 
um, the march, and then King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was the sort of last major speaker. They have a benediction, and uh, they do the Pledge of Allegiance after him, but he's the last, like, the keynote. He's the closer, um, right? The, the big, closer, right. The big finale, because the difference, too, between 57 and 63 is that King has become a major national figure. We've had the Montgomery bus boycott. We have had all of these actions where King is now what most people think of when they think mm -hmm. of these movements. And so it's sort of amazing to think 57 was really his first national address. And then 63, he's given that big keynote. They're building it all around him. They have determined that the only portion of this or one of the only really significant portions of this that will air live is going to be King. So yes. they're like, yeah, you're, you're it. Spotlight's on you. And they right. gave him four minutes. Which, uh, <laughs> spoiler guys, if you have ever speaks, read the speech or watched the video or anything, it's more than four minutes. He's going to go for 16. I can't imagine how they thought that the, he could get in and out of a speech in four minutes. Like, what? It was it was a good effort by Rustin to keep this on, on a timetable. Yeah. Um, King has given versions of this speech before in other contexts. So he has actually talked about the dream in other contexts before, several times. Um, he also is, and the speech goes on for a while, and there's a lot more to this speech than just the soundbite that everyone has heard, which is important, but there's a lot of things in this speech. That's a, it's a really intensely important speech, not just because of the, the bit that you've heard. He references uh, Lincoln. He references the unpaid debt, the sort of idea that, you know, we've been freed for 100 years, but really have we been? He references Kennedy in the White House. Like, this is a big and important speech. He actually was working on it at another location in Washington. He stayed the night before at the Willard Hotel, which is a few blocks away, and he's going to finish up the draft of it there. Uh, and then, sort of as he's winding down, kind of, Mahalia Jackson, who is a, um, a singer, is going to encourage him to talk about the dream. She, If you watch the video of this, she says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he starts to, to diverges from his prepared remarks, which they were not supposed to do. <laughs> and then goes into the most famous portion of the speech, which is what you've heard about his four little children and about having a dream today. And this is the part, the soundbite that you have seen or heard. And it's largely improvised, which is astonishing. And I always talk about this when I talk about this on my tours. First of all, this is August 28th, so it's hot and disgusting and humid and gross. If you've ever been to the Lincoln Memorial, there's not a lot of shade. <laughs> like, there's nowhere to hide if the sun is beating on you. Now, by this time, by the time King's speech is, uh, happens, it's they're getting into the late afternoon, so there's some shade or whatever, but there's three, almost 300,000 people crammed into a teeny little area. He's the last speaker, and he gets up in front of all these people and improvises knowing that if he messes up, that will be the whole deal. That's the whole train right there that he's messed up on the national stage. And he just like absolutely delivers this remarkable moment um, in American history. And it is his speeches, his part of the speech is really the only uh, portion of this that's broadcast on TV. It is the only reason a lot of people have heard of this march. Like, this speech really sells the whole march. This is really sort of, I can't overemphasize how crucial this is. So it's such a really impressive moment. I want to just 
touch on a couple things. One, which is we'll put the full text of the speech into the show notes, but I really, really encourage people to read this. Um, what he is talking about before he gets to the part that is improvised and that we know so well is really incredible. And I think he really uh, looked at the goals of this march and integrated that into his speech. There's a lot of talk here about economic freedom. There's a lot of talk here about the dignity of work. There's talk, though, about things like the inability to travel freely, the inability to, um, you know, have economic opportunity. He talks openly about police brutality. He's talking mm -hmm. about things that are touchy subjects that are difficult to address. He does so very beautifully and in a very balanced way, right? It's it's talking about these things without using language that could be viewed as inflammatory, but he's explicit in what the problems are facing that they're facing in 1963. Um, so I really, really encourage everyone to read the full text. It's really remarkable. Um, I think he's so benefited by his background in theology and as a preacher to have that ability to kind of go a little bit more off the cuff. And then Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson is one of the most influential gospel singers uh, of the 20th century. She is a very important member of this movement. She will attend a wide array of marches, rallies, protests, events. Um, she is going to um, be there in 57, performing and singing. She calls out to him because she's heard him do this thing. And she she recognizes the moment. She mm -hmm. prompts him. And I think it's great. He might not have done it if she hadn't. And then if you watch the documentary Summer of Soul, just um, in the summer of 1969, um, there is going to be uh, a series of uh, concerts uh, that are held in Harlem and there's a great documentary that came out about it but she will get up in these concerts um, and perform on the gospel night King's favorite hymnals and she will sing before this huge crowd of Americans still mourning his assassination and she talks about the moments she shared with him the travel they did together um, his spirituality and his faith and how it influenced her and vice versa and I just think she's a really really um, important figure that tends to get overlooked but she had a really remarkable relationship with King and I just wanted to acknowledge that and she would be a very important member of this movement. Um, the impact is this sets the stage for all, basically all future protests and demonstrations. Like the Lincoln Memorial has been the site of demonstrations, protests, left-wing groups, right-wing groups, up, down, all around uh, since basically this moment. And this is sort of the er um, example of uh, sort of marching on the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and all sorts of people today, like this, it's like the most famous crossroads of American life. Um, we all want that moment with the Lincoln in the background and sort of to further our cause because everybody thinks that Lincoln should be on our side in what way or another. We always have to you know, there's a, a historian that says that every generation of Americans has to get right with Lincoln. Uh, and so that's really going to be the start of a lot of this, is that there's such a foundation here, um, including the Poor People's Campaign, which is going to be organized by King in 67 and 68. That's what he's working on uh, towards the end of his life. There's also quite a bit of criticism, both before and after. Malcolm X, not a fan, calls it the farce on Washington. Um, he does not participate, describes it as a circus which is not fair, I think. I think that's not fair. Um, 
some of the student groups, including SNCC, which is what John Lewis represents, will be very openly critical. They wanted more direct action. They're going to be critical that they their sort of um, message was watered down a little bit, that John Lewis was sort of censored. That's going to be, it deepens this sort of generational divide that had already existed in the movement. So John Lewis represents the younger generation. He's 23. King is sort of in the middle. And then you get Rustin and Randolph, who are uh, in their 50s and 70s, respectively. And so they are going to represent sort of the more old guard uh, with, um, it's a it's an interesting mix. And this is going to deepen this generational divide. And I think there's a fair question of who is the March for ultimately. Yes. At the end of the day, who was this March for? Who was this for the benefit of? And mm -hmm. I think Rustin and Randolph make a good case that this march was about broadening support for this movement beyond activists, beyond the people immediately impacted by it, that if you want this to have success more broadly across the United States, you have to get the buy-in mm -hmm. of the average American. But if you are an activist, an organizer, it felt very frustrating because of the lack of direct action that ends up being associated with this particular day. Um, outside of a handful of men that go up to Capitol Hill prior to the march, including King, um, there's almost no lobbying as a part of this. There's no real protest action, as it were. Um, and so we do see that in the months that follow, there's a sense of, okay, well, who was this for? And you do get a sense that the younger generation, for some will feel that this was not for them and mm -hmm. it was not in line with where they feel the movement is going. And then of course, there are plenty of people who just don't like it because they don't like what King and everyone else at this march has to say. Segregationists sure. in Congress are going to have myriad complaints about this. Kennedy gets flack both from within his party and without um, because he and his admin let this happen. And there's this sense of, well, if you let them do this, well, we're just gonna let them march and gather anywhere. Uh, and there starts to be blowback politically for him, which is unsurprising, right? If you're a white supremacist, you're not gonna love this. Right, exactly. And it does lead to direct action. So one of the people who's listening to this is, at the time, the vice president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. Kennedy is dead three months later. So Kennedy does not get a chance to take real important action about this. Johnson will. Johnson is going to pick up the baton and really run with it. And the next year, the Civil Rights Act is passed, 1964. The Voting Rights Act is passed a year later. So what they are marching for, this is a very huge, very public, very um, prominent demonstration that leads to very direct results in the next year or two. So this is going to be, Johnson is listening to this. And Johnson is going to use the capital that he has to affect change very quickly. So that I think is in a large part, one of the bigger sort of, um, the biggest perhaps, um, uh, result of this is that Congress is listening. And so is the vice president who becomes the president. And the, the big factor they couldn't have known is that the VP would be the president within that. So there is a huge unintentional benefit that comes from this. And that is the impression it makes on Johnson. And I absolutely agree um, that that's a huge, huge takeaway of this. And I mean, without a doubt, as as tour guides, as people who live in the D.C. area, it it is the bar to which every single protest march demonstration has been held to ever since. Um and it really is, there's very few in our history since that I think have been so well organized, so well executed, so clear eyed and so mm -hmm. clear throated in their mission, their goals, their objective, and to be carried out so successfully, it's really, really hard to match that. 
It really is. And it's such an important speech, particularly King's speech, is going to be so important that now there is a, a marker in the spot where he gave the speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which is actually going to be brought about by student action. Like a bunch of school kids in North Carolina are going to say, hey, there should be some plaque, marker, designation, something. And so they're going to write their congressman and the National Park Service and eventually get it added to the Lincoln Memorial on the spot where he was giving, where all the speakers were speaking that day, uh, but the spot where Dr. King delivered the I Have a Dream speech. So this is very much the template for um, all the marches, not just just on the Lincoln, but on the Capitol, the marches that, you know, that happened around the White House, like this is sort of the big template for a lot of um, the sort of nonviolent action that kind of comes uh, out, out of this. Excellent. What a great topic. I know it's something we get to talk about a lot as part of our job, but a chance to really get to dig in in a way you don't when you have a 10 minute stop. I to know. talk about these things I really, really love. And I certainly hope um, that your takeaway from this episode is that you want to watch the Rustin film. They did, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, basically recreate the march. You know, it was plenty of little digital wizardry that I'm sure is going to come in to get the crowds. But um, I really think this will be a key component of the Rustin yes. Biopic, so I'm excited to see how it plays out. Um, but there'll, there'll be some other little resources in the show notes. Um, but if you haven't, I encourage you to spend some time on YouTube watching these speeches, um, watching King in particular, um, because it really is a, an important moment in our history. It is. Thank you guys for coming along with us, and we'll see you next time. October's coming. October, spooky season. Love it. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Bye.